Well, as you're shuffling uh, some plates and things of that nature, if you could shuffle to a Bible, uh, whether one you brought or you can use a hardback one in the uh, pew rack in front of you. Uh, in the East Auditorium, there's some folks walking around with some Bibles. And uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love to give you one uh, at our Welcome Center as you leave. We've got some that are just for you uh, as you get maybe started uh, getting your Bible off the shelf, as this series suggests, uh, and getting into it a little bit. And so um, if you're newer with us, we are on the front end, the first couple weeks into uh, a 13-week series. Uh, where we're going, you could say, an overview of the entire Bible. And you might think, man, 13 weeks is a long time to, you know, just do a general overview of, of, of the Bible when, when, if I'm honest, you know, uh, I'd love to hear some sermon series on some, like, things that I actually need. It's like, no offense, appreciate the Bible offer, but I got a Bible I know how to read. How about a sermon series on, like, my marriage or, like, anxiety and worry uh, or just, like, some direction in life? Well, um, I understand that question and, you know, why 13 entire weeks on just overview of the Bible, um, but I'm glad you asked that question, or at least I asked it for you, uh, because here's why we're doing this, because we understand that this book or this collection of 66 books that make up this book uh, is a book that is all about God. The book is all about who God is and what he's up to in our lives meaning when we want to explore any felt need that we might have, uh, we understand as it says in his word, Psalm 24, that the whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So anything that we could come up with to talk about, when we focus on who God is, we experience that by understanding who God is, we are equipped to approach, you could say proactively or even reactively as things come our way, any felt need that we have in our lives. And so if we want a sermon on, you know, marriage or managing my finances or worry, anxiety, trials, struggle, suffering, uh, direction in life, purpose and meaning of life or anything like that, then when we get to who God is, that's going to get underneath all of that. It's going to transcend and kind of slice through all of it and build for us, you could say, a foundation that will put us in a position to be able to take on by the power of God uh, at work in us and through us any possible situation, circumstance, uh, or need that we could have. And so that's why we're digging into the scriptures holistically. And um, with that, really, we, we do understand that not when we talk about marriage or finances, or it's not like we're just making stuff up as we go. I mean, we're taking that from the scriptures, maybe with a few verses here or a passage uh, there. Uh, but to understand, you could say, and get a grip on the full story of scripture helps us be better equipped when we you know, take on a verse here or a passage there. I appreciate the way that... Uh, um, theologian and scholar N.T. Wright puts it when it comes to the Bible. He says, the, Bi the Bible, it wasn't primarily written in order to be read in 10 verse chunks. Uh, he says, we have cut the Bible down to size. Now, obviously, there are some bits, if you're familiar with scripture, like the Psalms or James, that are written in very short bursts. But most of the Bible including Paul's letters and certainly the Gospels and certainly great books like Isaiah and so on, they are read in order to be experienced the way you experience a symphony. Imagine if you were to go to a concert and you got the first 10 bars of Beethoven's Fifth. And then the conductor turned around and said, okay, that's all for this week. Come back same time next week and we'll have the next 10 bars. You would think, wait, what? And so we want to, you could say, experience the full symphony 
of the scriptures as we walk through the Bible through this series together. Uh, as we understand God's big story, we then can better understand how our story fits into his story. And so we're gonna continue the story of scripture uh, with the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And if you're thinking, uh-oh, the second book, did I miss the first week? So yeah, so it's, Exodus is really Genesis continued, but don't worry, Genesis is still in your Bible. You can still find it. It's not, it's not going anywhere. And uh, if you wanted to catch the sermon on that, uh, we keep our sermons safely in the cloud somewhere uh, at firstdecatur.org slash sermons. And so you can get caught up. You, you really have only missed a week of through the Bible in some ways that you could uh, catch last week and this week. And we also have a Bible reading plan that's meant to not read the entire scriptures, but just uh, enough of it to kind of hit the highlights to give you a grip on the scriptures over the 13 weeks, less than 10 minutes a day, five days a week with two days to make up. Can't beat it. So... Um, We're going to step into Exodus, and as we step into it, really what we see are some key themes from Genesis and Exodus uh, that these two books really set the course. They set uh, the trajectory, if you will, for the entirety of all the other 64 books that we're going to look at uh, in the rest of this series, and and frankly, the story of our lives. And so we're going to look at five key themes that are going to really carry us uh, throughout this whole series uh, here today. And to get us uh, maybe our heads around the story that this takes place in Exodus, I thought I'd have a little fun uh, with a flannel graph. Now, I, I didn't grow up going to church. So like people like who went to Sunday school a long time ago, they're like, oh, I miss flannel graph. I'm like, a flannel, what? that's a shirt I wear? I don't understand what you're talking about. But apparently this was a tool used to teach children before we had these screeny things, okay? And so a couple weeks ago, Pastor Wayne uh, backed the bus right over me and made fun of me about us doing this movie series. And so he brought his own multimedia presentation uh, where he put my face on a flannel graph, uh, which is fine. Wayne didn't have my back, but Jesus does. And so... I'm good to go. So we're, I thought, you know, as much as he was just goofing around with that, I thought, actually, this might be a pretty good tool to get us to race through the story of Exodus and still, like, the ADD among us still get a grip on what's actually going in the story. And so we're going to have a little fun with flannel, uh, but 21st century style, through telling the story of Exodus through emoji. And so... We are going to look at the story of Exodus in the Bible and through emoji today. And so to get us up to speed on where we start the story with Genesis, just to kind of like if you missed the previous episode, uh, essentially Genesis is the first book of the Bible where uh, God has always been, always will be, and then he creates creation. He creates time itself. He creates uh, the earth and the heavens and everything in it, including us in his own image. And for the first two chapters or so, everything's going thumbs up. But then, third chapter, Satan shows up and he enters in temptation, which turns into Adam and Eve sinning and breaking um, really the, the, the goodness that God had made. And so we have brokenness and sin in our world. So thumbs down, Genesis chapter three. And really you could say the rest of the Bible tells the story from Genesis three on of God on a mission to fix what was broken in the garden to restore us back into himself, to work to remove the sin that we all have in our lives that separates us from a sinless, perfect God. That's the mission God is on. And so if you were part of the reading plan last week, uh, you saw that this plan started to unfold in Genesis chapter 12 to a guy named Abraham. Uh, God says, I am going to bless you, your offspring, and eventually the entire world through your lineage. And so the rest of Genesis is following the beginning part of that story where Abraham uh, has Isaac, who has Jacob, who will later be named Israel, 
hint to the story of the Bible. So Israel and then Joseph, uh, his son, which is what we end the book of Genesis with. And Joseph, uh, he, had a, he had some pretty tough uh, stuff in his life, but God used that uh, really for the saving of an entire known world and that the world was going through a severe famine, but through some advanced planning on Joseph's part, uh, he ends up uh, putting uh, from the home base in Egypt, uh, being able to feed the entire world and keep uh, you know, the human race alive, so to speak, through God's work. And so that's where we ended Genesis with Joseph uh, kind of on top of things in Egypt. But then a new regime uh, comes into Egypt who knows nothing of Joseph, knows nothing of these promises that God has made to Abraham. And the, the new regime in uh, Egypt is concerned about the population growth among the Israelites, like God's honoring his promise and multiplying these people like uh, sand on the seashore, as God says. And so they are looking to resolve that problem in fear that the Israelites, that God's people, would rise up against them. And so that's where we pick up the story in Exodus. And so I'd invite you to follow along either in your Bible or the verses will be on the screen. Uh, and it says this in verse 11, chapter 1. That's where we're going to start. It says that, so they, as a result of the, the population growth, the Egyptians, they put slave masters over them, over the Israelites, over the Hebrews, to oppress them with forced labor. Okay, is my thing crooked? It is crooked, that bothers me. Better? Don't tell me if it's not, okay. All right, so he, he, he puts them in forced labor. The Egyptians are oppressing them. It says, uh, but the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So we've got God's people, they're, they're in slavery, they're in bondage, they're oppressed, they're, uh, and, and beyond this, to continue to aid in the population um, problem that uh, the Egyptians see. The Pharaoh is having every baby boy born of Israelite uh, families uh, killed at birth, and if they somehow escape that, if they're found out, they're to be, the babies are to be thrown into the Nile, and so it's an awful, awful time for God's people. Uh, and one of those Israelite baby boys that we find in the story is a baby boy who would be named Moses. And so Moses is born and his mother does a pretty good job hiding him for the first six months, which I don't know if you ever had a birth through six month old, that's pretty impressive. Uh, but eventually uh, can't hide him any longer. And so in great desperation and faith, she puts her baby in a basket and floats him up the river toward Pharaoh's house in which in God's providence, uh, one of Pharaoh's daughters comes down, sees the baby, has compassion on the baby, takes the baby in as her own and get this, calls for an Israelite slave woman to come and nurse this baby who happens to be Moses's Moses is, I guess you say it that way, biological mother. And so Moses, he grows up uh, in this Egyptian pharaoh household with everything that you could imagine, the, the prestige and the wealth and the riches that go uh, with that as a big shot somebody. But then um, in his life, about 40 years in, he sees one of his, his uh, Israelite uh, people being, a, you know, being abused by an um, Egyptian slave master, and so uh, he rescues his Israelite blood and ends up killing 
this slave master. And word gets out, and so he's in trouble, and so he has to flee. And so he flees to the wilderness. Uh, so kind of a bum deal there for him. And he goes to tend sheep, uh, leaving his life of prestige for wandering in the wilderness for the next 40 years. And so it's here that we begin to see the first key theme that we want to explore in Exodus, in the whole story of Scripture, and our lives. And that is the theme of God's presence. We see God is present. We see hints of it in the way that he's been with Moses from uh, even birth. But then we really see it show up uh, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, where God uh, says this, where it says this in God's word. It says that the Israelites, that they groaned in their slavery and they cried out. And the cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That he's going to multiply them through generations. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And so we see in the midst of Israel's suffering, in the midst of their struggle, God looks upon them with concern. He is Present. He is present and concerned about their slavery, their struggles, and their cries for help, of which we see God's concern being applied based on, we see, it says that second theme, God's promises. His care and compassion play out in his promises to his people, if we recall, to bless the whole world through this people group, through this nation. Verse 24 again, it says God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant. And so a covenant is really, you could say, it's a God-sized promise. It's a God-sized commitment that God will not break. And he made this commitment with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it's gonna continue on. We're gonna see here in a bit with Moses. And just to intercept the story here a little bit, that as you think about God's promises and his presence being with us, that if you, in your life, for whatever reason, and, and it's subtle sometimes, have convinced yourself or let yourself believe that you are somehow outside of being worthy of God's presence or promises in your life that, uh, yeah, intellectually you know God's there, but it's like, you know, really, I, I really should be praying more or I should do this more or doing less of that more if I really wanted God's presence in my life and wanted his promises uh, to be honored in my life. Know that. This is not true because you don't have to look any further than the characters he made his covenant with. You look at Abraham, the lives of Isaac, the lives of Jacob. If you look at that in your reading plan, these guys, these guys were screw-ups. I mean, and Moses is not gonna do much better and we're gonna keep following the story of the Israelites and they're gonna mess it up even more. That what we see is that God's commitment to the, his people and thus to us has nothing to do with us. That regardless of what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do to try to mess things up, God's covenant still stands. And so the reality is, is God's presence and promise, regardless of whether you feel like you've earned it, uh, I assure you, you haven't. Nor have I, nor have any of us. None of us have. But God commits and is faithful to us, not because of our awesomeness or lack thereof or anything in between, but because of God's awesomeness and who he is and what he is about. And so his promises, his presence, they are good and they can be depended on regardless of our lack of commitment in the midst of them. And so as I think about that trajectory setting reality, as we think about what we're setting a course on throughout the whole scriptures, I wonder that if as we step into this as a congregation, that if you really take the commitment to kind of get this through the Bible light opportunity to, to step into this reading plan, what might 
be transformed in our lives over the next you know, 11 more weeks, if you will. That if we really scoured God's word by keeping our eyes peeled for his promises, for how he shows his presence, you know, what might be transformed in our life? That if we got beyond just an intellectual agreement that yeah, God's promises, God's pre- presence and all that, but really pressed into, pressed our faith into his presence, I wonder what kind of, Egypt might we be set free from? What kind of bondage, what kind of entrapment, what kind of struggle? If we really put our faith in God's promises and presence in the midst of it, what could that look like? What sin might we walk away from? What confidence might we gain because it's not in ourselves but it's in what God is doing if we really sought his presence based on his promises in our lives? And so I look forward to that uh, as a church together. So as we look at Moses and how he's learning this in his own life, uh, we left Moses, if you recall, we left him in the wilderness. And, and Moses, he lives to be 120 years old. And you could say his life is broken up into like three trimesters. The first 40 years in the prestige, the next 40 years, uh, you know, he went from a somebody to a nobody. Uh, whoops, sorry, Moses. Um, went to a nobody in the wilderness. And he's gonna spend the next 40 years, his last trimester of life, uh, you could say as a nobody, telling everybody about somebody, to quote the recent Matthew West and Casting Crown song, if you listen to any Christian radio at all. Uh, But it's a great message that God is going to use a nobody to tell the world, to tell everybody about somebody, about namely who God is. And that's how Moses is gonna be used. So let's see how that story plays out. Uh, So we left Moses, he's wandering in the wilderness for the last 40 years as a shepherd. And all of a sudden, Exodus chapter three, verse three, there is a bush that happens to be burning, but the bush ain't being burnt up. And so Moses says, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And so he does, and Moses uh, encounters a burning bush, and God speaks to him through that bush. And God says this, he says, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God is seeing his mission through and he wants to see it through Moses. And I'm thinking, you know, in in all honesty, I might be giving myself too much credit here, um, but I would like to think that if I come upon a bush that's being burnt up but not being burnt up and God speaks through it, I'm thinking, next action for me, I'm in, like whatever you say goes, like I'm, I'm gonna do that. But again, probably too much credit to myself on that. Uh, and, and in fairness, Moses uh, has a few, you could say follow-up questions uh, of God as to how this is gonna play out. And so in Exodus, uh, where are we? Uh, verse 11, uh, chapter three, he says this to God. He says, well, who am I, Moses says, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? which God says in his presence and his promise, verse 12, I will be with you. Okay. Uh, One more question, God, Moses says. One more question. Um, uh, Suppose I go and I do this thing that you're telling me to go do and and I tell the Israelites all these things and the Israelites ask of me, well, who sent you? What is his name? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you because this is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. 
And it's here in this passage that we get the name of God. We get the name Yahweh, uh, which in Hebrew is a translation of I am, which when you look in your Bible and you read uh, the, the word the Lord, and the Lord is in all capitals for some reason in those locations, that is a translation of I am, of Yahweh, of the Lord, like the one and only God of the universe. Uh, that's, that's who's sending you, Moses. Uh, to which Moses responds, okay, uh, Fair enough, but just one more question after that, one more question. Uh, It's like putting a toddler to bed. Uh, Moses says, chapter four, verse one, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? And they say, the Lord did not appear to you. And so, okay, God gives him some miraculous signs uh, to, to show these people. He has them, he says, take your shepherd's staff and throw it on the ground and it turns into a snake. He says, now pick it back up and it turns back into a staff cool trick. Uh, From there, he says, okay, now Moses, take your hand and I want you to stick it in your pocket. Okay, now take it out of your pocket. And he finds out he has leprosy. His hand is like withered and he's just thinking, you know what he's thinking? He's thinking, you know, he had me at hello. I should have just trusted him at the burning bush saying, now I've got leprosy, I got to deal with it. Put your hand back in your pocket, Moses. Okay, he takes it out and and he heals him. So, okay, Moses is healed, all is well. But unfortunately, Moses' short-term memory, not so good as he debates with God yet again. Verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, meaning like I see that this thing's not going so well. Uh, And then he says, I am slow of speech, and tongue. Basically, Moses says, I, I don't speak good and stuff. And that's his argument. To which God says, verse 11, who gave human beings their mouths? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. But Moses, again, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. And it says that at this, the Lord's anger burned against Moses. That is my top left emoji and frequently used emojis on my phone. My wife gets that all the time, like, sorry, sorry. Face palm. Yeah, the Lord's anger burns against Moses. Moses realizes he's blowing this and he blew it. And what I love about this part of the story is, and this isn't the first time that the Lord's anger is gonna burn against Moses and the mistakes that he makes. Uh, But what I love about it is what God doesn't do right here. We don't, the, the, the story doesn't continue. God's saying, forget it, enough, you're, I'll, I'll get someone else. You know, enough with you most. No, he doesn't do that. In care, compassion, in his mercy, and again, committed to who he is, even when Moses is not, God makes a way. And so God, he provides Moses' brother Aaron to come alongside him to help share in some of the commitments that they have to go to uh, Egypt and free the people, okay? And so God makes a way. And so Moses and Aaron keep going into the story. We see that they go to Pharaoh and they say what is arguably the four most quoted words in all the Bible. Let my people go. Eight times we see it in Exodus, and in more recent history, it has been the mantra, the story of Exodus has been the mantra uh, of of liberation and freedom. Uh, If you think about uh, the Pilgrim Fathers, the American Revolution of the 17th century, um, we have either the uh, anti-slavery campaigns of the 19th century, the civil rights movement of the 20th century, uh, over and over the refrain of let my people go, it has been the cry of Christians for centuries. Uh, to on behalf of themselves or on behalf 
behalf of others to stand against injustice and to seek delivery from oppression. Let my people go. And it is a theme that we see start in Exodus and play throughout history, the theme of God's liberation, his commitment to set people free. And so as I wonder about our own lives in the 21st century, and this theme of being set free, and what I would argue is not necessarily the first blush response people have to Christianity or God's word. In fact, I would say that more encounters than not, I have people thinking the opposite, that when it comes to God and his word, that it's some sort of design to actually squelch freedom, to kind of like box you in, to, um, to, to kind of steal your fun and squelch what you really wanna do. That's not freeing, it's like this, like this set of rules and boundaries. But can I say, can God's word say, there's nothing more opposite of what God's word is designed to be. For example, um, the 10 commandments. What if, uh, like it's gonna come in Exodus chapter 20, like we've got these commandments like do not lie. Um, you tell me, in your life, if you've ever been caught in a lie that led to another lie, that led to another series of lies, that led to some back-end lies, that led to the story to get you to the point where you're not even sure in your own head and heart what the truth is anymore, how freeing is that? Sounds like bondage to me. It says in, uh, elsewhere in God's word that those who, who, who choose to live lives of truth-telling, of honesty, integrity, it says that they lie down and they sleep in peace. Their rest is sweet, it says, because there's no duplicity within them. That's freedom. Or it says another commandment, it says, do not covet. Coveting is essentially desperately wanting something that someone else has that you don't have. And tell me, how, how freeing is it to run around chasing and wanting something and some things that everybody else has that you don't seem to have, rather than the freedom of living in the contentment of what has been provided for you already in God's providence and trusting that he's gonna continue to do it into the future? Or kids in the room here today, um, when it says, honor your father and mother, it says it's the first commandment with a promise that goes with it. Um, I don't know how it works for you in your household, but I know for in my household, if my kids, if there's something they wanna get to do, if there's something they wanna stop doing or do less of, namely chores or whatever the case may be, it tends to go better for them when they honor mom and dad's request in the first place rather than dishonor us by not doing it, and I would assume that would go better for you as well. And so I wonder, if we actually believed, like really stepped into the actual idea that full surrender to Jesus is actually the most freeing thing that we could experience, that God is actually after your freedom, like what could be set free in your life? What would your marriage look like? What would your finances look like? What would your, your understanding of how you approach your work look like if you knew you were free? If you knew that God was after your freedom and the story of Exodus, the story of the scripture was truly a story of freedom that God wanted in your story. What would your life look like? From there, the story continues with uh, Moses, Exodus chapter seven through 11. Um, him asking, his, asking Pharaoh to let his people go, uh, not going so well, and so God sends these plagues, uh, these 10 plagues in chapter seven through 11 that really display this fourth theme that we're gonna look at throughout the whole series, and that is the power of God. God's power, that Yahweh, that God alone is the 
all-powerful God of the universe, uh, and that really what's interesting about these 10 plagues um, that at first read don't seem to make a lot of sense. Like, what kind of plagues are they? They got flies and gnats and darkness and frogs. It's like, I mean, it sounds pretty awful, but really? And the reason that these specific plagues are chosen is because each one of the 10 plagues has a corresponding Egyptian God that God is saying, "Uh uh-uh, there are no other gods. There's only I am. There's only Yahweh. There's only the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Uh, And so, for example, the the Nile, it's the first uh, plague. He turns uh, the Nile River, the water, into blood. Everything's blood everywhere. And so any understanding these people had that there was a a river god that provided water to drink or for crops or whatever is blown up by this this, this curse, uh, or, or like the, the, the livestock, they're cursed, all the livestock die. And so it's like, hey, Egypt, you can pray to cow God all you want, but it doesn't exist because there's only the Lord, the I am, uh, Yahweh, the only power in the universe is the one who created the universe. And so we have these plagues, and then we get to the 10th plague. And the 10th and final plague is the plague of the firstborn. It's the plague of death on the firstborn of which God has warned Pharaoh several times about but rejects. And this is really important here because what's going on with this particular plague, if you will, is this curse. It is a curse. It is a reality. It is a result for everyone, Egyptian and Israelite alike, meaning no one is innocent. This is important. No one is innocent. This is not just about one group over another. No one is innocent. Fast forward to the New Testament, we see, uh, explain this way in the book of Romans, that we've all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God, we're all broken from that, and uh, the result of that sin, the consequence of that sin, it says, is death. It is death. And so everyone is under the plague of the firstborn. Livestock, people, Israelite, Egyptian, no one is innocent. Um, Everybody is under that curse because of sin, but, but in the display of these key themes of God's power, God's presence, his promise, his liberation, his commitment to freedom, God makes a way. He makes a way for the Israelites. He makes a way. It says that when God's gonna pass through the night and pass judgment of death over every firstborn, he says, I will pass over the homes of the Israelites, sparing their firstborns, if they, uh, that the dinner on the night of that curse is about to take place, if they take a lamb, and they sacrifice it, and they, the lamb they eat for dinner, and then they take some of that blood, and it says in chapter 12, verse seven, that they're to take the blood of a spotless lamb, and they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Then verse 12, it says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And so we see that God makes a way. And he makes a way for the Israelites as they are saved by the blood of a spotless lamb. God makes a way for them to be passed over. And here we see arguably the most important theme that is in Exodus, that is in scripture, that is in this whole understanding of this thing called the Christian life, and that is the theme of sacrifice. The theme of sacrifice. 
that from beginning to end, we see the story of scripture that God chooses very interestingly to, because this is really God coming out to the world. He's kind of saying, here's who I am, you know, and to the nations. This is him honoring his commitment, his plan to bless everyone. And what's interesting is the way that he shows his presence and his power is through sacrifice, through sacrifice, that death passes over his people because of the sacrifice of something else. And now fast forward, spoiler alert, here's where the Bible's going. Jesus Christ, the spotless and perfect lamb who had no sin within him, dies for the forgiveness of our sin. That sin is not just passed over, not just covered, but it is wiped clean. It is, it is no more, it is forgiven, it is removed because of the blood of the perfect spotless lamb and his blood shed on the cross. And so, even if you haven't been around church, you've probably heard Jesus died for the forgiveness of my sins. But again, I would say, what next level understanding and reality could we step into in our faith if we move past this intellectual, contractual understanding with God that, yeah, he's forgiven my sin, so I get to have a relationship both here and in heaven. And we actually lived the kind of life that was based on the sacrifice that has already been done for us rather than what we slip into, that the Christian life is in some way uh, encapsulated by what I can do or what I can get better at or if I strive to do this or uh, if I can just pull this off, that, that that is not what the Christian life is rooted in. That the whole understanding is not based on what you can do but what has already been done for you through the sacrifice of another, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I wonder, I wonder what kind of peace, what kind of like genuine joy and confidence and assurance and resolve could we have in our lives and walk in if we knew that our lives are not based and rooted in our own striving and struggle, but what already has been fully struggled in by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so making this practical, uh, okay, say, okay, you, you want a sermon on marriage, all right? Well, we see sermon on marriage right here in Exodus. Um, and so I would say, you know, in your marriage, or you can translate this probably to any other relationship, but in your marriage, let's say it this way. Let's say, instead of living in, you could say, the approval um, uh, and, and maybe a measuring stick of how your spouse feels about you, that rather than being defined by your spouse, that instead you understood that you are already defined, you are already free, you are already forgiven, you are already approved in God's sight, and then... And then out of the overflow of that reality, out of the overflow of that definition of God's promise and presence and power at work within you through the power of his Holy Spirit, you were then in a position that you understood, okay, I can offer that to my spouse. Do you see the difference? They don't define who you are. God defines you and then you're good and then out of the overflow of that, you can offer that goodness and that strength to your spouse rather than ride the roller coaster of how they feel about you, which is never gonna be all that great. It's marriage, it's hard right? I mean, Hollywood tells us a different story. It tells us, you complete me. No, he doesn't. No, she doesn't. Only God completes us, and out of that completion can we then offer something of strength and, and really live out the way that God designed our marriage to work, as we draw closer to God and who he is in us, and we then love our spouses the way that it was designed to with sacrifice and love and forgiveness, just the way that Jesus demonstrated for us. 
um, or, or students. You know, we've got some students in the room and you know, you've crossed maybe over into middle school and high school and your brain has this new magical power that you didn't have in elementary school where all of a sudden you are aware that other people can be aware of you. And so you live your life where it's called an imaginary audience where it's like everybody's watching me and worried about what I'm wearing and what I'm doing. And the truth is, spoiler alert, no, they're not, because they're thinking the same thing about themselves. And so everyone's just thinking about themselves. And so just know, kids, you don't live your life for an audience of your peers. School is not the stage, and all those kids are not your audience. You do not live your life for them. You get to live your life for an audience of one. You get to live your life for an audience of one, of Jesus Christ, who has already accepted you, who already defined you, who has already says, you belong to me, who says in John 15, 15 that, I am your friend, you are my friend. And then out of the overflow of that, you can walk confidently and offer the strength that God gives you to your peers, to your friends, to kids who aren't your friends, and all of a sudden, it's a different approach in life. It's what changed me, I didn't grow up going to church, but that was the defining moment for me, that understanding right there that I just said, it's huge. And so fast forward, you know, maybe it's not relationships, maybe for college students, it's grades or GPA, that stuff doesn't define you. You know, in the real world, it's our work or our roles or whatever it is we do. That stuff doesn't define you, who you report to or who reports to you or your whatever. None of that stuff matters. That is not who you are. You are identified by Jesus Christ and then out of the overflow of what he's defined you and given you gifts and abilities and roles and opportunities that you offer that to the world. That Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, you do it onto the Lord, to the glory of God. But it doesn't define you. God defines you and you use those gifts and the ability to give glory to him in whatever it is he's called you or placed you in, okay? I'm going long, I'm gonna miss lunch. Okay, so if I could sum it up with one verse, I would say this is it, this is it. Psalm 73, 26, 25 through 26, it says this. The earth, it has nothing. The earth has nothing we need. The earth has nothing I desire besides you when it comes to who we are because God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, which means you really are free. You are free. You are free from anything outside of God defining you and out of the overflow of the strength of your heart and he is your portion forever. You are equipped. You have the foundation to take on whatever topic or felt need might come your way in this life. And so to that end, if we believe the Exodus story and the story of God is our story, let me pray for us that we would find our story and how it intersects and fits into God's bigger story, not just in a sermon on a Sunday, but as we walk out of this place and into the world that he's called us to. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we are not flying blind, that you have given us your word and we live in a time where it's, we've got Bibles, probably seven of them, and one of which we left in the car. We have your word in front of us and we have the gift to see the way in which uh, it is to be a lamp onto our feet, a light onto our path. And so Father, for us here today, I pray God that wherever your word and your spirit needs to illuminate that path, uh, that would be so, that our story would fit into your bigger story. Father, for those who are here who haven't surrendered their life, uh, even initially that first step is we got to celebrate here in the service with baptism, uh, that, that idea of that you really are the one who has taken our sin, that you have approved us. Um, God, that no one would walk out of this place without having a conversation uh, with someone about what that kind of life looks like, to be forgiven and free and to step into a whole new life that you wanna lead both here and for all of eternity. I heard it said this week, and Father, I just I pray this 
is true. We know, uh, we, we have, everyone you could say has a Genesis, but we see that not everybody has an Exodus. Not everyone has um, a liberation, a, a freedom from the bondage of sin. And so God, may that be true of us all before we leave this place. God, for the other themes, wherever we're at, whatever we're facing, if we need to uh, really accept that you are with us, that your presence is with us, that we need to really believe in your power over ours, that if we need to understand that there are promises that we are missing out on uh, for freedom because of your sacrifice, Father, that the power of your Holy Spirit would convict us, would reveal this to us, and that conviction, that we'd close the gap between conviction and action, that as we leave, that our lives would actually be changed, not by anything we do, but by how we trust in what you have already done. We need the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us, and we thank you. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.